If you want to write stories your readers will love, there are three things you need to do. Understand storytelling principles, see how other writers have applied those principles, and of course, you have to use them in your own work. Here on the Story Nerd Podcast, our goal is to demystify story theory. We'll help you with the first two steps so that you can get started with the third. My name is Valerie Francis. I'm a writer and literary editor, and I focus on stories by, for, and about women. And I'm Melanie Hill, writer, editor, and poet, and I have a passion for spy stories, fairy tales, and master detective novels. On today's episode, Melanie pitched The Great Gatsby so that we can study resonance. This 2013 film was directed by Baz Luhrmann from a screenplay by Baz Luhrmann and Craig Pierce, and of course it's based on the book by F. Scott Fitzgerald. There will be spoilers because we can't talk about the movie without talking about the movie. And we would love it if you could give the show a rating and review. For Apple Podcast listeners, you can do it right from your phone. Just go to the show's landing page and scroll to the bottom. It's that simple. All right, Miss Melanie, what do you have for the genre of The Great Gatsby? So for the global genre this week, I have a status tragic and I focus on Gatsby for that. And for the secondary genre, I have a love story, but it's an obsession love story that does not end well. What have you got? Well, it's interesting. Uh, if, if we're focusing on Gatsby, then I agree with you. I also have a status tragic story for him and the secondary genre of love obsession. I actually think Nick is the protagonist, though. So, Ooh, why? and I'm going to talk more about that. Well, I'll talk about that more about that. Later. Okay. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> patience. patience. <laughs> and in that case, uh, I, I think it's a worldview disillusionment. Right. Yeah. And I can see that for Nick. Absolutely. But I'm really, I'm keen to hear why you think Nick's the protagonist and, and not Gatsby. All right. So I shall dive in a bit this week into The Great Gatsby and look at resonance. Now I'm going to take a slightly different approach this week and I'm really looking at the very big picture of The Great Gatsby because F. Scott Fitzgerald's novel, The Great Gatsby, is often considered the great American novel. Now Baz Luhrmann's 2013 adaption pretty much sticks to the plot that's in the novella, although there are some changes. But he also sticks mainly and resonates, I think, the themes that are contained within the novella. Now, on the surface, this is a tragic love story of one man's desire to turn back time and remove the loss of his greatest love. But underneath the surface, this story presents a cynical picture of the collapse of the American dream during a period of excessive wealth and material excesses. For some people, not all, but for some. So the book and the movie are set in 1922. And this is important because this also reflects the way the universal and timeless themes resonate between the symbols of 1920 and the current day. And I find this very fascinating. So compare the 1920s to the 2020s. Compare the wasteland to the Rust Belt and East and West Egg to Manhattan and the places where the extremely wealthy play. Now the micro study of the characters in The Great Gatsby and the way they live are still relevant today. So how did F. Scott Fitzgerald and Baz Luhrmann do it? 
Well, they did it really through duality and reality. And these are the two themes that resonate through The Great Gatsby and through time into the present day. So duality and the conflict between ideal and reality are represented in and through the characters. Now, there's an ironic dual nature of the means by which people believe they will achieve their dreams in this story. And it's money and pleasure that are those means. However, it's money and pleasure which create greed and corruption as well as be the mechanisms that allow people to be hedonistic. And this is the basis for a corrupt society. So it's also worth noting that no amount of money delivers happiness to any of the characters. Now, the characters have dual natures and roles in the story too. Now, Tom and Gatsby are both wealthy and they are both corrupt but in different ways. Gatsby is wealthy but it's not the right kind of rich. Gatsby uses the illegal alcohol market to gather enough wealth to attract Daisy back into his life. His business associates are gangsters and his wealth is new. This is the best way for Gatsby to make money after the war, it, but it doesn't give him access to the establishment where inherited money and, in, and wealthy families or old families control entry and exit into their world. So there's money and there's old money. And old money behaves a certain way that new money doesn't. Gatsby flaunts his wealth through over-the-top parties, yellow cars, light-coloured suits and a flashy mansion, whereas Daisy and Tom host small dinner parties, dress in subdued colours and understand the nuances of indirect speech. Now, Tom is the personification of the old money power. The illusion of respectability covers Tom's moral corruption and when we first meet him it's obvious he's having an affair. Now Daisy informs Nick that Tom was absent for the birth of their daughter and was most likely with his mistress. And it's interesting right because Tom's mistress is the classless Myrtle. Now he has feelings for her but he's happy to keep her on the side and have Daisy as his respectable wife. Now, of course, Tom is happy to have Myrtle. She's fun, sexy and into material excess. So Myrtle is everything that Daisy isn't. But Myrtle is not wife material. Daisy is. Tom is violent towards his lover Myrtle because she dares to ridicule Daisy, something that he's actually doing when he's with her, but he won't stand for other people to do it. Now, Tom exerts his right to have Myrtle, but will not stand for Daisy to do the same. But only because Gatsby is from a poor background and because Gatsby threatens the social order. Now, Tom is not frightened to deceive George, Myrtle's husband, and he points him towards Gatsby at the end of the movie and hints really that Gatsby was Myrtle's lover, 
which again adds to his moral corruption, I believe. Now Daisy, now <laughs> she is such a great character, but not in a good way in my opinion. <laughs> so Daisy, who has been unhappy with Tom, embarks on an affair with Gatsby. And Tom, upon finding out, is not happy with the situation. So what's good for Tom isn't good for Daisy. But both of them know that they will never marry their lower class suitors. Instead, they destroy the lives of Myrtle and Gatsby without remorse and without consequence. So again, it's a level of moral corruption that we see play out. As I've mentioned before, we see how both Tom and Gatsby are wealthy and corrupt, but the difference between them is chaos and order. Gatsby is chaos and Tom is order. Now, Gatsby's methods of attaining wealth are through corruption and chaos, but his intention is hopeful. Now, everything Gatsby does since the war has been focused on getting Daisy back. But it's Daisy's role in the story, which again is rooted in duality. So she is Gatsby's goal, but the closer Gatsby believes he gets to marrying Daisy, the further away he becomes. And she is the one who keeps Gatsby away from his dream of being with her. She was the one who decided to marry Tom and stop waiting for Gatsby. She is the one who refuses to admit that she never loved Tom. And she is also the key to Gatsby's demise. Now, Daisy is keenly aware of the lifestyle Tom's old money affords her. And while she tells Nick she's unhappy, Her unhappiness is not motivation enough to leave that life and be with Gatsby. It's not money that keeps her from Gatsby because Gatsby has money. It's the privilege that she wants and Gatsby will never be able to provide her with that. And even Nick is pushed into a role that repeats the dual morality themes through this novel. Tom makes Nick an accomplice in his affair with Myrtle by taking him to meet Myrtle and her sister. Now, Nick is not impressed by Tom's behaviour, but then he becomes the avenue for Gatsby to meet with Daisy. He also passively condones their affair. So on one hand, Nick is disgusted by Tom's infidelity, and then on the other, he is a facilitator of Daisy and Gatsby's infidelity. So why does Nick tolerate his own duality? Well, it's Gatsby's loyalty and love compared to Tom's carelessness and contempt that holds the key to Nick's role in the story. And as much as Gatsby is classless and vulgar, Nick believes he is a noble person. Gatsby remains a symbol of hope for Nick And Gatsby, unlike Daisy and Tom, doesn't leave behind a trail of destruction. Gatsby hopes to recreate a time gone by. Gatsby has idealised the past and longs to go back to that time. The problem with this, and this problem still exists today, is that we can never go back to the past, especially if it's a past that didn't really exist. 
And when Gatsby gets closer to his dream, we see how much he's idealised Daisy. And the closer he gets to her, this reality sets in and we realise that the dream didn't exist in the first place. Now, I'm not one that always believes that the mean justifies the ends, but in Gatsby, we do see what he's aspiring to do. He's built his wealth for Daisy, and when she stops him from being with her, he cannot give up on his dream. His desire for Daisy has driven his actions for years, and even when she doesn't reject Tom for him, Gatsby still takes her home. He makes sure that she's safe and he waits for her to return to him. And he also takes the blame for killing Myrtle, which is a fatal error in the end. Now, Nick has been a witness to Gatsby's dream and has seen what he's been prepared to do to go back to the past. Now, Nick does warn Gatsby that he can't recreate the past, but Gatsby believes he can. And this is a point where we start to understand that Gatsby's dream will shatter and it's unlikely he'll recover. And I think we've all had those moments at times. <laughs> now, despite the means by which Gatsby attains his wealth, Nick understands why. He's also acutely aware at Gatsby's funeral that hope has died with Gatsby. Of all the people who attended his party, only Nick attends his funeral. In the movie, that is a change, right? So in the book, Gatsby's father goes to, and that's how Nick learns about Gatsby's past. But in the movie, that changes, and we learn about that through, through the narration of the story. Daisy has disappeared physically, and idealistically, she has also evaporated. The power struggles that exist in The Great Gatsby are the same that exist now. And this movie and the story it's based on use universal themes to create resonance and a timeless story. And this is why it has become a classic. The truth of the human condition is represented in stories like The Great Gatsby, All Quiet on the Western Front, Emma, Pride and Prejudice, Brave New World and other classics. And writing a classic that speaks through time is not easy. Now, Valerie, I know this is another classic plot structure for you, but did you find something interesting about the structure in The Great Gatsby to talk about this week? Aha, yes, I have. <laughs> okay, so I totally understand the the discussion of or the belief of Gatsby as the main character. And I just want to say, I'm focusing on the film right now. So my interpretation could be simply the difference between the novel and the film. I have read the novel multiple times, but it's been a long time. So if I read the novel, I might change my opinion on this. So I'm just focusing on the film. In saying that, if we think that Gatsby is the protagonist, then we have an arc plot structure. If we say that Nick is the protagonist, we have a mini plot structure. This is so cool. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you said that because I have been thinking that all week, you know, and that's exactly, I'm going, I thought exactly the same thing. I just, it's obviously not my area of focus, but that's, uh, that makes me feel good. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I we are definitely up. story nerds. <laughs> that's right. And I, I picked that up too. So, oh, wow. That's great. Okay. So, okay. What, what, what do I have in my notes here? Let me look at my notes. When it comes to the plot structure uh, or the form or the shape of a story, uh, and we, we look at it with respect to The Great Gatsby, as I said, I think it depends on who you see as the protagonist. Now, the fact that we can make an argument for both characters as protagonists, in my opinion, speaks to how well the story's crafted. I mean, it's got a lot of layers. There's a reason we're still talking about it 100 years later. So in looking at the shape of this story, I'm actually more convinced than ever that Nick is the protagonist. So everything that I'm going to say is based on that opinion. So before I even jump into all that, why does Nick feel like the protagonist to me of the film? Well, he's the framing story. And this whole this whole thing of him writing the novel, writing down Gatsby's story, is his way of processing what happened. This is all about Nick and his therapy. The whole thing is. So that's why I'm going with Nick as the protagonist. Now, I'm calling this film version of The Great Gatsby a mini plot story that has a framing story. Now, if you've been listening to the other episodes this season, you'll know that there's a sliding scale between story forms. So it's possible to have a story that leans more toward one form than another. So I, yes, I think this film is mini plot, but not, you know, quote unquote, pure mini plot like The Accidental Tourist. When it comes to defining story form, there are seven story elements to consider. And these are the same things that I've been talking about all season. So we've got the story logic. Is, is the things that happen, is there a clear causality or is it just random? The ending of the story, is it open or closed? The timeline, are we talking about linear or nonlinear? What's the nature of the conflict? Is it external to the protagonist or internal to the protagonist? What's the nature of the protagonist? Is he active or passive? How many protagonists do you have? Just one or do you have a whole bunch? And the reality of the story, is it consistent or inconsistent? So arc plot is the primary form of story. It's what we think of when we think of stories. The other forms, multiplot, miniplot, antiplot, quasi-antiplot, are all variations of this arc plot. When it comes to the difference between arc plot and miniplot, for me... The deciding factor is the nature of the protagonist. In other words, whether the main character is active or passive. And Nick Carraway is about as passive a protagonist as you're likely to find. He's a voyeur. He observes what other people are doing, but he's not really doing anything himself. Now, in saying this, Nick is not nearly as passive as Macon in The Accidental Tourist. And <laughs> I don't know about you, Melanie, but thank God for that. <laughs> Macon's just kind of there, right? Robert McKee says in story that passive doesn't mean inert, but holy Hannah, Macon, in my opinion, is as close to inert as I want to get. <laughs> now, I have a question. I have no idea what the answer is, but I've discovered a question. And this is a line of inquiry I'm going to follow as I continue my own study in this area. And here's my question. Are there different kinds of passive protagonists? Or maybe a better way to put it is this. Are there different functions that a passive protagonist can fulfill in a story? 
Now, my guess is yes. That's my theory. But I have no idea what the range of those functions would be or how many different kinds of passive protagonists there might be. With Nick and Macon, we have two kinds. But are these the only two? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> With Macon, the story, and by that I mean the events, are happening to him. Muriel is an active character and so is Sarah, but Macon is not. He doesn't even respond to their actions. He is so emotionally paralyzed. I mean, that's the point of the story. He is emotionally paralyzed that he can't respond to them. It's his marriage that has broken up. It's his son who has been killed. It's his new romance that we're seeing, yet he has no active response. He's just kind of going with the flow. Now with Nick, the active story events are happening to other characters. And Nick is observing them. Like I said a minute ago, he's a voyeur. And in case we don't pick that up on our own, Tom actually says it. The first time that uh, Tom takes Nick to the city uh, and they're having the party with Myrtle and her sister, um, he's, he's trying to get Nick to party with them, right? And he says, I know you like to watch. Like I remember that from our college days, which is really super creepy, but it's there. So... Um, it's Gatsby who's actively pursuing Daisy. Daisy is making an active decision to have an affair with Gatsby. Tom is choosing to have affairs with other women, notably Myrtle. Jordan is actively partying and choosing to help Gatsby. Nick responds to all these characters, but he doesn't initiate the action. However, he's not as passive as Macon. So Daisy invites Nick to supper, so he goes. Gatsby invites him to the party, so he goes. Tom invites him to the city, so he goes. Jordan invites him to tea, so he goes. <laughs> See a pattern here? Gatsby asks him to invite Daisy for tea, so he complies. Now, if we think about, this is a little side note here, if we think about Nick as the protagonist, I don't think we can fully trust his version of events. Because if you rewatch the film, and again, this might be a film thing. I can't. I honestly can't remember how this plays in the book. But if you rewatch the film with uh, the thought that Nick is the protagonist, he comes out of this smelling like a rose. He really does. Everybody else is culpable, but he isn't. Which is another reason why I kind of think he's the protagonist. Anyway, the only real action associated with Nick um, has to do with his work. And that's mostly off screen. We don't see him studying, but we do see him with books. We don't really see him working, but we do see him in his office. I think this is a really interesting use of mini plot. And it's an interesting way to present the internal shift of a character. Now, at the moment, I can't think of any other examples that have this form, but I'm sure they exist. So if anyone listening can think of Another example of a story with a voyeuristic narrator who is also the protagonist, reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram at Valerie underscore Francis and let me know because I really want to dive into it. Alrighty. So if I'm saying Gatsby is mini plot because Nick is passive, how does the film measure up against the other six elements of story form? Well, we have to look at the ending, whether it's opened or closed. A mini plot story is open-ended, but Gatsby isn't Gatsby, the, the film, isn't really open-ended. We know that Nick leaves New York 
because he's completely disillusioned with the people, the lifestyle, and the pursuit of material wealth. We also know that, he, that as a result of his time with Gatsby and the Buchanans, he ends up in therapy. He's actually writing this whole story as a form of therapy. However, we don't know much beyond that. We can assume that Nick will be okay now that he's gotten Gatsby and the others out of his system and onto paper, but we don't know that for sure. And if we think back to the very first episode of the season, Lego Batman, uh, no, that's the second one, I think, Lego Batman. Um, in, I mean, that has about as closed an ending as you're ever going to find. Gatsby isn't as closed as that, but it's not really open-ended either. So again, it's on that sliding scale. The form of conflict. Many plot stories have conflict that is internal to the protagonist. And here, if we think of Nick as the protagonist, we can definitely check this mini box, mini plot box <laughs> for Gatsby. It's a disillusionment story for Nick Carraway. Uh, the whole story is his form of therapy to deal with what I think is the small t trauma of having dealt with all these people. Many plot stories have a single protagonist. Now, whether we think Jay is the protagonist or Nick, there's only one. If Jay is the protagonist, Nick is the narrator only. If Nick is the protagonist, Jay becomes an antagonist. And see, if Nick was the narrator only, would he have an arc? Would he factor so much into this story? I don't know. Again, it's a sliding scale. And this is an extremely well-written story. <laughs> so there's lots and lots of layers. There's, I mean, we could talk about this for hours and people have been studying it for many, many years, right? That, that's the beauty of this writing. Uh, a mini plot story has a passive protagonist and I'm saying, yes, it's Nick. The timeline, um, now Mickey and Coin are the two who talk about this the most, and neither one of them have said explicitly what kind of timeline uh, a mini plot story has. Um, but my interpretation of what they're saying is that it would be a linear timeline. And yes, this film does have a linear timeline. It has a framing story, though, that puts the main story in flashback, but it's still linear if you read how Robert McKee defines linear. So this is in keeping with mini plot, but it's also in keeping with an arc plot. Causality, yep, there's clear causality, which is a feature of both mini plot and arc plot. And the reality is also consistent, which is again, a feature of both mini plot and arc plot. So I think that uh, this film is a mini plot story with Nick as the protagonist. It's a worldview disillusionment story for him. However, it's on the sliding scale. So it's not pure even if we look at Nick as the protagonist, there's still elements of arc plot there. Um, and like I said, there's obviously you can reanalyze this with Jay as the uh, protagonist and get an arc plot story. Anyway, that's what I have for this week. Melanie. Right. So the action step this week is to look at the themes in The Great Gatsby because they have resonated for nearly 100 years. And this is due to the small cast of characters and how they are used to represent larger aspects of society. So if you are writing this type of story, identify what your theme is or your themes are and look at the duality of your characters. How do they oppose each other 
and how do they complement each other. That wraps it up for this week. It's a quick one this week. It also wraps it up for the season, though, which means that uh, Melanie and I will be back next week with a roundup of everything we have learned in the past 10 weeks about plot structure and resonance. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. For access to writing templates and worksheets and more than 70 hours of training, subscribe to my inner circle by visiting valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Valerie underscore Francis. If you'd like to find out about books to help you read like a writer, visit Melanie on Facebook and Instagram under Melanie Hill author or find out more about her at melaniehill.com.au. And remember, story theory doesn't have to be difficult. It's a tool to help you write more, not less. So take it one step at a time and have fun. Mm-hmm.